This is StoryBeat, storytellers on storytelling. An exploration into how master storytellers and artists develop and build brilliant stories and works of art that people everywhere love and admire. So join us as we discover how talented creators of all kinds find success in the worlds of imagination and entertainment. Here now is your host, Steve Cuden. Thanks for joining us on StoryBeat. We're coming to you from the Center for Media Innovation on the campus of Point Park University in the heart of downtown Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating or review on whatever app or platform you're listening to. Your support helps us bring more great StoryBeat episodes to you. Well, my guest today, motion picture and television production designer and art director Vincent Jeffords, was born in New York City, but grew up mainly in Los Angeles, where his father was an executive for the Walt Disney Company, and his mother was a model with the Eileen Ford Agency. As a kid, Vincent always created drawings, objects, and dioramas. He also spent time making Super 8 movies with friends. While in high school, Vincent developed a talent for sculpting realistic character heads in clay, from which he created plaster molds and rubber Halloween masks, which he sold to local stores. While attending UCLA, where he earned a bachelor's degree in fine arts with an emphasis on sculpture, Vincent was also spending time art-directing movies for graduate students in the Department of Theater, Film, and Television. After school, Vincent focused on sculpture, which he would go on to exhibit in one-man shows in L.A., New York, London, and in various group shows. At that time, he also art-directed short films at the American Film Institute. Then a big door opened when Keith Greco and Vincent designed and built the Red Knight costume for Terry Gilliam's movie, The Fisher King. That led to work on commercials and his first independent feature film, Motorama, a quirky movie that ran on the Sundance channel for years. More small films led to movies of the week for network TV, commercials, and landing his first TV pilot, Relativity, for Ed Zwick and Marshall Herskovitz, which ran for three seasons. Vincent became the production designer for the original TV series Roswell and the NBC miniseries The 60s, both of which were nominated by the Art Directors Guild for Outstanding Design. Nearly 15 years ago, Vincent was brought on to a brand new show called Criminal Minds. 325 episodes later, he's still on the show, which has been syndicated in 66 countries around the world. Criminal Minds is in the top 20 all-time longest-running scripted episodic dramas, up there with Bonanza and The Simpsons. Vincent is currently at work on the final episode of the entire series, and so it is a great privilege to welcome the exceptionally talented Vincent Jeffords to Storybeat. Vincent, thank you so very much for joining me today. Well, thanks for having me. So you've been an artist all of your life, and it seems from your bio that um, you kind of fell into production and, and design. How did that happen? How did it start? Well, when I was, uh, well, here's the thing, uh, you know, I, when I was at uh, UCLA, they didn't have any kind of program for production design. Right. So when the students got to doing their graduate uh, films, they needed someone to help them. And, uh, you know, it was, it was just a natural thing to come over to the art department. Of course. See if someone would come and help. And, uh, and later, so I got pulled into it there. And then later I was the guy, you know, because I had a, I, I had a, I lived in a warehouse in East L.A., and I had a shop, and I had all my tools and my paint, and I knew how to build things, and I had a truck, 
So people were always coming to me, asking me to help out with stuff. And I'm guessing so you were kind of... That's how I got drawn into it. I'm guessing you were kind of cheap to hire at that time. I was very cheap to hire. And, and that made you very attractive. Gas, gas and food. <laughs> gas and, and food. And, and some fun. And, but, you but, but you made your bones. You learned a, a lot about doing that at that time, I assume. I did. And at that time, it was... You know, I was interested in a lot of things. I was pr- primarily interested in sculpture, but I was interested in... I was making furniture designs, and I was interested in film. You know, I'd always been interested in film. And uh, so it just began to pull me, you know, the opportunities in, in that way. So, so, so had you always been had you always been a fan of the movies and TV? Absolutely. You know, my father, as you mentioned, was a Disney exec, and when we moved, he got moved out to the studio, Burbank Studio, we were moved to Los Angeles in '61, mm-hmm. and one of the privileges uh, of being a studio exec is that you could you could borrow 16 millimeter films, and we had a 16 millimeter film projector in our basement, and my dad would bring every weekend like Cinema Paradiso. Wow. You know, you would bring home 16-millimeter films. I ended up seeing the entire library. I mean, we ran through all the popular films, and then we got, you know, deeper into the Disney library, the educational films, and right. odd films, and we watched everything. Did you, did, all, had, all the all the TV shows, Wonderful World of Disney too, all that stuff? You know, they, they did not have, at that time, none of the TV shows were available in 16-millimeter, unless they were like, uh, you know, there were some films that, like Davy Crockett that, Disney made that they aired on uh, on you know Wonderful World of Color, mm-hmm. you know, the Disney show, um, and also had theatrical releases. So were but you there's a ton of material, shorts and all kinds of things that most people never see. Oh, I'm imagining that library of unseen films is probably quite substantial. Um, it, so when you were watching movies and TV back then, were you looking at the designs? Were you paying attention to that then? You know, I don't. Th- I just think you. I think you just get. Um, well, there's. You know, there are certain films that just. Twenty thousand leagues under the sea. It's incredible. Or you know, Pinocchio or Dumbo. The sequences. I mean, these films were just. So even even films that are from kind of forgotten now, like Swiss Family Robinson, that absolutely captured a kid's imagination. The idea of taking a boat, dismantled wrecked boat, and taking all the parts of it and, and building a gigantic treehouse with mechanisms to, to carry water up and down. And, right. I mean, it was just, uh, I mean, that kind of stuff just, you know, kind of stuff that's, that's just kind of indelible when you're a kid. Well, you, it, obviously you were fascinated by it. Um, uh, so, you know, what was it about production design ultimately that drew you to it when you were in school? Well, the uh, what I really liked about uh, I mean here's the thing I always made the distinction between um, you know a piece of sculpture and a piece of design for film you know it's it really has a, to do with the read time like a piece of sculpture you go back to over and over again you, you you stand in front of it you look at it you touch it some you know if you're allowed and you 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 absorb it in a different way film reads you know the image reads by and you have to and it has to read for the for the scene mm-hmm. and um, but there's such a variety of things you get to make. You know, you're, you're presented with a problem, and it's very, it's very fun if you like to problem solve. That someone presents you with a design problem, and then you, you, you get to, you know, respond with those, with your thoughts about how to solve that problem. Right. You know. And the other thing that appealed to me about uh, production design was the speed at which you got to see the things realized. You know, 
it's like when you you design something for a commercial or a TV show or a movie. It's not, you know, once the decision's made and the thing is going ahead, it has to get made. Sure. It has to be finished. You know, so there's this. It, you know, it's very satisfying to see the designs realized. You know, it, 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 um, you obviously can't spend a whole lot of time on them. I mean, it's clearly true. Even on a big budget movie, you can't spend a lot of time on it. No, you get your time, and then once the thing is happening, you know, it's uh, that's what you, but that's it's it has to happen. You know, it has to be ready. This is why people, when you're making, uh, you know, it's it's often hard to go to outside vendors who aren't in the film business. And you say, well, I need this thing constructed, or I need this part, or I need this thing made, I need this glass slumped to a certain shape. And, you know, they'll, they'll say, oh, you know, we had a little problem, and uh, we can't get it to you on Tuesday, but it'll be ready by... But no. You say, no, that, that there is no Wednesday. It has to be ready Tuesday. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people don't get that. People working in the film industry get that. It has to be delivered. Well, you're, you know? th- that's a big moving train that you're on. It's got to it's yeah. be there. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, in your bio, we talked about uh, Halloween masks, because you made Halloween masks. Has that, that experience of doing that back then, has that had an impact on work you do today? Well, I mean, in a way it did, because, uh, you know, at that time, you know, the, I had friends who were interested in, we were very interested in makeup effects. Mm-hmm. You know, we big fans of people like Dick Smith. And later, you know, later like Rick Baker, and uh, and I was, of course, the other half of that was, you know, um, because again, working for Disney, I used to go with my dad, and I got to go to what was used to be called uh, Wed Enterprise. Oh yes, I've worked for yeah. Wed. You worked for Wed. I so worked for Wed on Epcot Center. Ever, yeah, yeah. So I used to be able to go over there with my dad every once in a while, and I met Blaine Gibson. Oh, who, sure. I don't know. If you, yeah. Right. So I got to meet Blaine Gibson several times, and I mean, he was just this master sculptor. Absolutely. And and so part of you know seeing him with all the sculpted heads and all the character heads and everything he did for Pirates of the Caribbean and all the all the presidents, you know, and when he did a portrait, it was perfect. You know. Did did and, you uh, did you get to go over to Mapo and see the the working animatronics? I did a couple of times. Um, yeah. People don't uh, just for I the did. list for the listeners uh, understanding. Wed Enterprises was stood for Walter Elias Disney Enterprises, and they were the theme park design arm. And next door was Mapo, which was short for Mary Poppins, and that's where they built everything. Right. So they, all of the all of the um, the armatures and the lucite, uh, you know, they they do all that the the, the lucite uh, the bodies, basically skins. Yeah. For all of the audio animatronic figures right. at that time. Exactly. You know, and I noticed it's funny, and I'm a fan of of, of Westworld, uh, the show Westworld. Oh, it's and, great. And there's a flashback sequence in that that I, I was rewatching recently when uh, the creator of the park is talking about their first, when they first started 35 years ago, and they, there were these little clips of, of basically exactly the way Disney makes their audio animatronics. There was kind of a, <laughs> of a there's a mechanical armature, a loose sight skin, and then they skin they skin that over with uh, with the silicon, right? Know, a silicon skin, realistic silicon skin over that, and you see them sleeving all that stuff. It's just a quick cut, and it's funny. I said, "Yeah, well, that's straight out of straight out of uh, Mapo." It is, you know? yeah. That would be straight out of Mapo. It was very interesting to to see that in in the works and how it worked, uh, because you, you know, it's it's just right out of the it's out of sci fi, even though it was right in front of you. 
Um, and I found that very fascinating. Are there production designers back then or even today who you admire, who you think, wow, I, you know, that's someone to aspire toward? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, just staying on the Disney end of things, Peter Ellen Shaw. Oh, definitely. Um, you know, all the work, you know, all the early Bond films, you know. Ken Adam. So beautifully. Ken Adam. Yeah, beautiful design. Incredible um, design. Yeah. And, uh... He also, you know, just, he also uh, did Dr. Strangelove, and I think, I'm pretty all, sure... Oh, yes, and his his style was, was... was He also did he went all the way up to the Addams Family movies. He just, uh, he, uh... He was just impeccable work. So that, then he had a... that All that whole world had a big influence on me. Uh, um... Did, did you actually, I'm assuming you didn't go to school to learn this, or did you? Did you go to school? No, no, no. No. No, what happened was um, I was at my studio in East L.A. I was sculpting, I was exhibiting, and I had friends in the film business. And uh, at one point I got pulled into commercials. You know, I had a, uh, uh, you know, a friend who was doing work for, it was actually it was the same, the same uh, artist who got me, uh, who originally pro- approached me with to work on the Red Knight costume right. with Terry Gilliam. It was Keith Greco. He'd been working with a director and uh, Peter Lang. And then uh, I started working with Peter Lang, and that was my, you know, the first time I got to start spending, like having a real budget to do stuff. Because back in those days, they did a lot of car commercials. And in those days, car commercials involved a lot of construction. It was often you were building an entire soundstage mm. full of stuff to put cars in, mm. you know, which has all completely changed now. But... Back then, you'd create an environment, and then, and with a theme often, and then the cars would be in that, and there'd be a little story that went with that. And so, um, did a lot of that was my first kind of opportunity to work on a bigger scale, you know. So, even though I wasn't trained in in production design, I I kind of came out of that world, um, and uh, my background in my background in art just lent itself. Well, Plus, I had a background in construction. I mean, a sense of how, how things are made. Well, I think that helps a lot that when communicating. I would think that it that does help a lot because you're building constantly and you're telling people yeah, how things have, need to be built. Yeah, there's a language to that. The, how to realize stuff. Sure. You know? Sure. So you, you learned it by doing it. You didn't get a degree yeah. in it. And would you say that that was... Um, a positive for you, or would you pref- you think it would have been better if you'd had some training in it, or was it better well, the way you did it? This is a very good question because I'm I'm realizing now I'm actually involved with my you know I, I'm an art director I belong to the Art Directors Guild. Sure, you know that um, the title production designer is actually a it's almost an honorific. It, it didn't exist before the 1960s, which mm-hmm. is art directors. Art directors were the art, you know, if you look at older films, the credit is always an art director. Production right. design is a credit that evolved. And, uh, but, but there are no production designers in our contracts. It's art directors and assistant art directors. And so now I'm actually more involved in my guild at this point. I'm actually on the council. And um, I realized that I had, it was a two-edged sword, I never did any other job except the production design job. In other words, I, the projects started off very small, very tiny, but I was always doing the top job, and I always continued to do that job. And I just kept leapfrogging from project to project and bigger things and so on. Right. The 
advantage of that was I always got I was already at the top of the of my <laughs> you know of my profession in that sense. I was, I'd already become a production designer. Most people don't do it like that. No. They work for other people. They are assistants and they and they become art directors and then they get their break and they move up. And um, maybe they have to wait quite a while learning their craft and then they move up. I didn't have the benefit of having mentors. I mean, I had a couple of mentors. Uh, Paul Eads is a very good uh, television production designer, terrific. Um, and uh, he had hired me to do sculpting for him. And uh, when I first got my first break, I went to him with my designs and said, here are my floor plan, here are my designs for my first you know, TV show. Could you please look them over and tell me if I'm making any terrible mistakes? And he looked them over and made some suggestions. And um, so I had a couple of people that helped me, but I never had the benefit of of having all that umbrella of knowledge about how to do stuff, and also how the how the structure of a film works. You know, the art department is one cog. You got to know how all the other departments work. Sure, and you have to know how to communicate with them. And I had to learn that the hard way. And you're and you're all you're all pulling toward the same result. That, right. That end thing, whatever but that I didn't end thing know that There was a lot I didn't know, and yeah. I had to kind of reinvent the wheel, which made, you know, I all the mistakes I made were not design mistakes in my career. Mistakes I made were always not understanding how the, how the, uh, the business worked. You know, the politics or the communication issues worked. Sure. Did you, know? you, were, you said before floor plans. I'm curious, were you already uh, knowledgeable about drafting and all that prior to starting? No. Nope. No, I just knew how to draw. Uh, so, so when did you learn how to draft, one. which is a little different skill set? I never learned to draft. Uh, you... I always had hired people to draft. Ah, very so nice. I did all my, and I still do. I do, but you know, I, I've drawn so many sets that I can actually I visualize them. So in my mind, so clearly, and I can draw them. Actually, I can also draw them in a, in, a, in, a, in perspective. Mm-hmm. So I do rough sketches. I put a, I dimension them out just by, uh, I just you know rough dimensional. Uh, attributions, um, rough scale drawings, and I do. I'll do several views plus a floor plan, and then I've got this terrific, uh, you know, set designer who can look at my drawings and just whip them out. Um, and then we talk about stuff and details, and I'll go over it with my art director. And so, so what you have is the gift of a great eye. Yeah, I do have a good. And, and I, when you've drawn enough sets. I mean, like, we counted, you know, we've done this, Criminal Minds has been on for, you know, we just, we're on our 325th episode. Goodness. Yeah. I mean, it's, and so we, we, and we finish a week from Monday, and that's it, finale, end of show. Mm. And, uh, and we added up all the sets we've done on that show, and it was 8,267. Wow. Wow. About, about two-thirds of those were builds on stage. Wow. That's gigantic. So, it's staggering. <laughs> that is staggering. <laughs> I was staggered. The, how it much included? Uh, we added up. I think we did three hundred and seven police stations, quote unquote, <laughs> police stations. They were either police stations, FBI field offices, sheriff stations, ranger stations. You know, some kind of cop shop set. How many of those were redressed from something else? I always we always reuse sets on a TV show. Mm-hmm. That's the, that's actually the beauty of it. You've got, you build a set for one purpose. 
then you if you have the if you don't have to tear it down for reasons of of space and we had two big sound stages you repurpose constantly and that's one thing i learned on criminal minds you can turn anything into a morgue <laughs> almost anything and and actually the fun thing about repurposing sets is that it takes you to very unexpected places like you know if you have to take an existing space and then repurpose it, you'll, you'll find yourself being forced to make uh, solutions that you never would have thought of. Such as? Uh, well, like you, let's say the layout wouldn't be typical. So you cut out a wall and you leave, create an opening, or the windows weren't where you... So you change the windows into something else, and then the floor pad, and you end up with very... What, what ends up is unexpected solutions make things feel very real. Hmm. They, don't seem, they don't seem pat. You know, it's not like everything where you'd expect it, you know? Um, I think I find that fascinating. You just, you, it can be, you know, it can be liberating, actually. You know, it's, I've, I've now watched, I don't know if you've seen it, but um, the Grand Budapest Hotel. Have you ever seen oh, that? I know. Okay. What a piece, what a, what a confection it, really? that whole movie is. I've now seen that movie, I don't know, probably six or seven times, and more and more that I see it, the more I see how much redressing of the same set they have in that thing over and over again. It's astonishing. You spot it. Yeah, you start to see it after a while. You go, Wait a minute, that's the yeah. same set from that other scene. <laughs> but, you know, totally repainted, totally with different everything, and yet it's the same set. It's very interesting. And I'm assuming that's what you guys have done over and over for years. Oh, yeah, absolutely. One of the things we actually did on that show... We knew we were going to have to do different, you know, the, 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 what kept my interest in doing Criminal Minds for 15 years is that unlike other shows, it doesn't have permanent sets. Basically, you have this big BAU, which is a behavioral analysis unit at Quantico in Virginia. Then you have a jet where, and basically those are places where they work through exposition. You know, they set up the story and then, ex, and they're always going somewhere. So they continue the exposition on the jet. And then they get somewhere, right? And then you have to um, you have to build the world that they arrive at because it's a different city. So um, we just did a lot of we just and of course we built a lot of stuff. Plus, there's always the bad guy, and the bad guy usually is a creep, and he's usually got some creepy environment, right? So you you build some kind of interesting, dark, creepy space that the guy, you know, is. is doing his his nefarious thing his nefarious activities and yeah so we every kind of subterranean space and and, how, and every kind of creepy attic and how much on location did you do quite a lot because there's you know they're on the move so you do a lot of uh, a lot of dressing of exteriors of locations you're adding a lot of greens and walls and aging things or covering things or a lot of signage you know and are you on location with everything? I'm on location. I mean, I remember, as you said, you know, it's like a train. The art department is the, is laying track, you know, five miles out. Mm -hmm. And the train is coming all the time. Never On a TV show, they never stop shooting. You just shoot and shoot and shoot. So the train is always moving. You're laying track ahead of it. So um, by the time they get to a location, I, I mean, I would show up or my art director would show up to open set and make sure that everything's okay. But basically, our work is done and we're prepping by that time. So I'm, 
I'm almost never on set while they're shooting. And what happens? I'm, what happens if there's an issue that needs to be addressed? Do they call you, or does somebody else do it? No, no, they call us. But you know, we have a, um, you know, you have an you have an on-set dresser. You have if you have a good relationship with the assistant directors, um, they're the ones that are going to anticipate problems and communicate. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, uh, very rarely were there big, you know, problems of omission. Every once in a while, there's a, you know, something. Hey, weren't we supposed to have a railing here? You know, something. Every once in a while, something could fall through the cracks. Sure, of course. But often, it would be something where they think of something at the last minute <laughs> and wonder if there's, if we can, you know, basically pull it out of the hat. All right, so let's nice let's term. let's talk about the, the the process of a television episode. Once you have okay. a script, or you know, it's something brand new or the new season or whatever. Where do you start? What aside from reading the script, okay. which is obvious, where do you begin? Usually, it starts with you know, on this show, which is a very well produced show. There's different; it, it varies hugely from show to show. Um, but we would have an outline before we had a script. Okay. And the outline would indicate locations and sets, and we would have a discussion with the producer. You, on a TV show, you usually have you have your your line producer, and you also usually have a producing director. Okay. The producing director uh, usually not only directs, you know, several episodes, anywhere from you know three or four, or five episodes, of the, uh, but also supervises uh, other directors who are coming on board. You know, works with them more freelance, them. more of the freelance directors. So, yeah, so um, I sit down. In my case, you know, with Glenn Kershaw and Harry Bring, and we would look through the that and the location manager. We had two two location managers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they would alternate because they had to follow through on the show that they prepped, and um, and we start talking about it. Okay, it's Louisiana. You know, oh, you know. And usually you go straight to the, the, the thing that's the most challenging. We have a big explosion. We have to do a bayou scene. Where in the hell are we going to do a bayou in Los Angeles County? <laughs> you know, where, um, where do you do bayous, bayous in, in Los Angeles well, County? Well, interestingly, depending on time of year, uh, there, is a, um, there is one movie ranch called Pulsa Rosa. And in the spring, when the water is coming through their wash, they have a wash that's quite wide and full of, of trees including a lot of small trees, and they allow you to uh, sandbag that. Mm. And so we did a couple of times we were able to go in with enough prep, and we would do sandbag the, um, the wash so that we could create three feet of water backed up. Wow. And, um, and, you know, one time we built a little, like a cabin in the, you know, cabin in the bayou, you know. We actually brought in an alligator. It was pretty fun. You um, brought in a live alligator? Yeah, for a foreground shot. <laughs> so the alligator was in the foreground and kind of, you know, dashed into the, into the, you know, into the water. They had it penned off, you know. It's pretty fun. And 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 I assume a wrangler. And a wrangler, although, th- and this was early on. I think this was season three. I don't think you'd do that today. If you wanted to put an alligator in, you just CG your alligator in. You know, you wouldn't mm-hmm. bother with her, with all the trouble of transporting an animal. Right. You know? Right. Okay, so so I, we we got off track. You're you've got your script. You're talking to your producing director. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah, that's okay. All right, so what you do is you go down your list and you you, you pick the, the toughest thing. You know, there's a plane crash or some if it's a big item or whatever, 
And then you start saying, well, what? And then because we're familiar with the town and we've been scouting it, and you have a location manager to help you, you start looking, talking about, well, what, what, you know, where would the mansion be, and how would this? And well, clearly we have to build the basement. You know, basements, bathrooms, and bedrooms. There's kind of a, a, a rule of thumb that you build those because you don't want to cram the whole company into a little tiny room to try and shoot scenes. Right. It just makes a lot more sense to build those on stage. Um, so we'd immediately say, okay, I think we're building this, we're building that. Obviously, we're building the cop shop. Um, now let's go out and start scouting. So you would get, um, first thing that happened is location manager would email us all a bunch of photos. We would get the photos and weigh in. Then we'd set up scouts. Meanwhile, the show is shooting. You know, you're doing all the other stuff that's happening at the same time. This is why, as a production designer, I have to have a good art director because he's and he or she, in this case, he would be just keeping the wheels running, you know. Then you could spend a lot of time in the van um, driving around L.A. County looking at stuff, and you either have the outline or hopefully by that time you have the script. And then what you really have to do is think like the director. You know, no, it, it, the location doesn't... It has to serve that specific story. And, you know, if if it... What you want to do for the director is is not just say, oh, we found this beautiful house. You find the house with the balcony where you can get the sight line of the woman who's looking from the balcony mm. down into the driveway that sees the car driving away. You know, there are these little story points and sight lines, you know. Have you had You're that good. Have you had that conversation with somebody ahead of time, or are you being intuitive about no. it? No. No, you just look at the scripts and you talk to the producing director and you say, no, we need this, and we need to be able to run. You can't run from the kitchen to the door that gets to the basement, and then how would, you know, and then where would they exit? Okay, well, they got it. There's a scene where they come out of the basement window, and they got to break the window and window. Well, where are we going to put that? You try and anticipate all that stuff. Now, mm-hmm. you're not going to tell the director how he or she's going to shoot it. Right. But especially on an episodic television show, you, you get very grateful directors. If you can take them to a location and you've already thought out these things, and, and you present something that's a viable choice, and we'd always try and give them at least two good choices. And then if they, you know, rarely, if they, for some reason, didn't, those didn't work, you keep looking. But most of them would be delighted if you, if you bring them a really good location that solves all their problems, they really want to get on with prepping the movie, you know, the show. Sure. You know, they want to get on with their casting and working on the script and talking to the writer and you know, they don't want to spend all their time in the van if they don't have to. So if you solve their, help solve their problems, you move the whole process forward, you know? And that's what I felt like that was our job. Now, in a movie, you've got a lot more time to prep. You know, you're working, you know, you're, the director's on board. Uh, episodic, remember, the director's coming in, you know, they only have their one, you know, their week of prep. They you know, come they in gotta, late in the game. Yeah, they got to hit the ground running. It's a little different. And, and do you do you once you once you've got this notion as to what the various sets need to be in the script, do you then start to draw what your concepts I are? I do. I do. And again, I try to draw. I draw based on what's needed, and uh, in the story to try and tell the story visually, and then. Uh, but again, I don't want to dictate. You know, uh, entirely. The, but we also want to move. You know, we have to move fast in terms of getting the stuff built, because schedules change, too. That's the other thing. On a TV show, you have actor availability, and locations fall out, or there's a problem, and you've got to be able to, you know, oh, we need this, we need this set on the, 
second day of shooting instead of the seventh day of shooting. You know, um, so the sooner you have your drawings all done and approved, the faster you can get going, give construction an opportunity to get ahead of the curve. Do you build um, into your thinking this ability to punt or change quickly? All the time. All the time. All the time. Part of the imperative of trying to get the design, you know, you're not trying to shove the design down the director's throat. That's not the idea at all. You want the, the director and the DP um, involved. Um, but you want to at least have the bones there to present so the conversation can start, mm-hmm. you know? And then if the director says, you know, I really would be better for me if the door was over here because I want the guy to enter and I want them sitting at the couch and the thing was here and I could see him coming that would be better for me. Fine. Then let's redesign that floor plan and get that to work for your blocking. Right. You know? Um, but at least by then you have the rest of the space kind of laid out and you have a, you have a proposal for the, you know, the socioeconomic level, the age of the, of the, of the interior, you know, what's it made of the color, maybe suggestions about the color scheme, you know, you know, based on the character, you've got, you could just conversation starters, you know? How much of the, how much of your, or how should I say this, in your design choices, how much are you thinking about the ability of the set to help tell the story? It's entirely about that. You know, it's funny, when you first start out, you know, you think, oh, I get to do a saloon, I want to do that, you know, that, that stamp tin ceiling, you know? <laughs> Or I want to put a mural. It would be so great to have a mural. And, uh, you know, you realize, well, you know, the director will come and say, hey, listen, I'm never, I don't have any reason to see the ceiling here. I don't have anybody, like, lying on the floor looking up, dying from a gunshot wound or anything. I, I'm not going to see that. What I really care about is I really want to see these windows, you know. So you really have to, and because I have to know that the parade went by or whatever. So, all, so all, all of production design and art direction has to do with servicing the story. Yes. That's the difference between that and architecture. Yep. You know, okay, the good. architect creates a space that you wander around in and experience. And, and I raised that know. question I raised that question only because I know there are plenty of people out there who want to be designers who may not be thinking that way. That really it's you're servicing the story. Yes. You're you're part and, of telling the story. Yes. And you have to, you really have to think of it that way because it's just going to live for that, you know? Um, and you also, depending on the medium, you know, you want to, you I know, mean, a lot of this is like you want to put texture and light behind people too, you mm-hmm. know? Sure. Because it's about the people, it's about the actors, you know, the characters. And so you're creating a place to put them. And, uh, you also have limited resources, so you begin to learn, like, what's going to get seen, you know? You talk to the DP or you talk to the director about what they're going to, sh- how they want to shoot it, and you know? And then you try and put your energy into what's going to be seen. Are, are, not, are a lot not, of the sets that you build only partial? Uh, not so much as you would think. You know, there's always that thing, like, oh, well, we only need, this is a real quick scene, we only need three walls, it's very quick. Yeah, it's sometimes... But mostly you want to, you know, I find that that in the end becomes counterproductive mm-hmm. because in the end they really, you know, they may change their mind on the day. They, they wind, up, wind up wanting to spin the camera around and then you have a problem. Right. Now, what, where that does play into, if you don't, you know, is the pie wedge. 
What's that? You know, What's the pie well, wedge? The pie wedge is like, let's say you're doing a huge dress. It's a burned building. Yeah. And you have to dress out the ruins of a burned building. And, you know, you don't have unlimited time and money. And so you really have to work with the director and say, hey, so here's the triangle, the pie wedge that you're shooting out from. Here's your big piece. And we're going to dress that, and that's going to be the thing with scale. Or, oh, the, I see. you know, the, car, the plane crash mm-hmm. or the whatever it is. Um, we're going to dress this out so you have a big wide shots, and, you know, sometimes they use a crane or they'll come down or they'll bring a character in. And then for the – once you get into the, into the dialogue of the scene itself, then you have angles that you can shoot back into or cheat back into so you can shoot the rest of the scene and insinuate that there's a 360 – degrees you know so, it, so um, it's, it's it's a lot of its trickery and and visual fakery yeah yeah and then you know also like uh, as i said you know obviously this varies on the scale of the project you know, how much money you have but, you know we did we've done you know you know post uh, tornado trailer park for instance mm-hmm. you know uh the huge amount of material you have to build to to have that you know the wreckage of that, so that that's a, that. So you we cre- you create a big pie wedge of destroyed trailers, including bringing in actual trailers that you break apart, and cars flipped over, and you know telephone poles that are you know with ruined lines hanging from them. You do all that, and then then you have areas where you go walk through with the director and says, and then you can you can shoot all of this. You've got this. You can shoot over here, but you can't look back there to right. address that, obviously. And they know that the directors and the DPs know that. And you give them plenty to do for for what they need, you know. On, on, a, um, on a show like Criminal Minds, do you do uh, tricks like uh, turntable tricks, where you put them in an elevator and turn the turntable and they walk I away? I wish the floor? we'd done that. Like, uh, what is it? Good night and good luck. Was that the uh, George Clooney film? Uh, yes. Thank you and good. I, the George, the, Long, long time ago, I, I spent a, f- a number of months working on One from the Heart, Francis Ford Coppola movie. Oh, yeah, and great. And everything, the whole exterior of downtown Las Vegas was built, and, and city streets were all built inside of sound stages. And, and one of the tricks they did was that turntable trick, which, which was they built two different hallways, and they put the elevator on a turntable, and they walked in with right. the camera, and they closed the doors, and they turned the turntable, and they walked into a different hallway. I thought that was really... You know, I didn't know that that, I didn't know that, that was used on that film first. Uh, it might the have... The Edward R. Murrow film. It might... No, no. It was, I, think, I think that trick was used long before even Coppola used it. It's been around okay, a long well, time. Okay, well, it's a brilliant trick. I always <laughs> yeah. love that. Because it's love very, that. very simple. I mean, it's very simple. But yet yeah. you completely fool the audience with it, which is a lot of what you do is is to set things up to make them very real, but it's not real at all. No, and it's listen. Some of them get very complicated. Like um, you know, you're talking about trying to marry. Sometimes you got to marry all these disparate pieces to try and get a sequence. We had a finale sequence, so this was the setup: big old bank robbery mm-hmm. hostage situation, situation mm-hmm. right? Right. So you've got an interior of a big bank and robbers come in and they hold everyone hostage. Then you have a bank explosion where all the windows on a street, all the windows on the bank get blown out, major explosion. Then the scene moved back inside to post 
explosion interior bank. <laughs> yeah. And the bank has been destroyed. Right. And um, so, okay, you know, how are you going to do that? Um, <laughs> well, in our case, what we did was, uh, after thinking about it, the best our best bet was Universal Backlot, New York City Street. Yeah, sure. And there was a big building on a corner with columns and high windows. Looked like an old bank. I should ask you which so which we, version of of, uh, of their street because it's burned down what three times. This is um, <laughs> that's a good question. And you don't need to know the answer. This I'm was just, I think, no. This was the rebuilt. This was the rebuilt backlot. This was this was Spielberg's recent, Spielberg's re- rebuild. This was Spielberg oversaw it. I think so, and this was, what, about eight years ago, nine years ago? That's right, about eight or nine years ago. Right. So, refurbished. Um, so, we we picked an exterior building, then I designed a set with matching windows, a corner set. We found a good drop mm-hmm. that we could cheat um, with blinds, and we built a big bank interior on set. Right. And then um, we had... Uh, all of this big standoff with cops and fire department on the back lot, because you couldn't do this in downtown L.A. Street. You can shut down two major intersections while you brought in all these vehicles and uh, did uh, an explosion. Unless you're, unless you're Michael Mann. And not even that anymore. <laughs> okay. You, you just can't do it anymore. Right. I mean, downtown L.A. is not the, not the uh, forgotten, you know, city that it once was. It's full of vibrant businesses and people now. You can't. Those days are gone. Right. Um, so anyway, um, yeah, so then we did this big explosion on location. And meanwhile, what we were doing is we, we, so we shot our, we shot our bank set on stage, went to Universal to do all the exteriors and the big explosion. Meanwhile, we, we completely redid the interior of the, you know, basically destroyed our set and made it blown up interior out of our set. And then we came back and we shot that and it was pretty seamless. The whole sequence worked very well. So, so let me make sure I understand. Did you build two separate interiors, or did you just redress no, the... No, the one interior. We shot it. The company went off for two days to shoot at uh, Universal. Got it. And we did a major redress of the interior of the existing set as a destroyed set. The only thing we brought back, we actually brought the blinds that were part of the actual construct, the actual explosion on location, and we dressed them in because they were blown apart and burned. And that was the one thing we brought back from location and put on our set. <laughs> and then did post-explosion bank interior on stage. Very interesting. Very interesting. I, I, so you've obviously worked with plenty of different people over time, producers and directors over the years. What is it that you, um, over the years, have learned that you really need most from producers or directors or both that helps you more than anything else? What are the things that you would like to see regularly? Well, the best thing you can have is, uh, in, and for all these, is flow of information and decision-making. I mean, that's what you really look to. You look for, for, you look for competent guidance about how the process is going to set up. You know, a, a good producer is, you know, they want it to look great, and they also know how to make it happen. So you want to work with people that know how to make it happen. Mm-hmm. And then um, you don't want to, you know, the, the director has to have time to, for he or she to think about what they want, but at some point... The most important thing is that, you know, they, everyone gets on the same page and then you move ahead. So, okay, so I, yeah. I, I do not want you to name names, but I'm just curious, has that ever happened where people, there was somebody came on 
or more than one person that came on that was not on the same page? And what did you do to get on the same page with them? Well, there's a lot of... Uh, you have to try and... Uh, if you have someone who can't, isn't sure about what they want, or or let's say they have something in their mind, but it's very, you have to, but they can't articulate it very clearly, you know, then it's your job to to, to keep trying to tease it out, you know, mm-hmm. and try and reflect back to the director what they what you think they're asking for, you know, um, until they've you know until you finally can come to an agreement. Um, I do imagine you know, the criminal uh, minds is a very well-oiled machine, um, but it, it surely must, because of the nature of what you do, it surely must have its glitches here and there that you have to deal with. Yeah. And, and so yeah, it's you just... Get glitches where you get hung up on things. What do you mean by hung uh, up? Somebody gets a, a decides one thing, but you, you can't do it or something? Oh, yeah. You know, you'll have something with, like, you know... Um, well, it depends on what, you know, as I said, they're, they're, in the, if we're still talking about the TV shows, um, you know, they're somewhat circumscribed by the, by the uh, circumstances mm-hmm. that they have to make decisions and it has to move forward. Um, but you'll have people that change their, change their mind a bunch of times. I'll tell you, I'll, I'll give you an example. I've worked with, um, a lot of times you'll have actors who are um, first-time directors on TV shows that they work on, you know, first-time directors. In that case, you often have to guide them, you know. They may have very good ideas, but they haven't done it before, and so you, you, you might have to guide them. Or they become—they're not quite sure where all the, uh, or any first-time director, like where the where the you know the, there's where the emphasis and of of things to worry about should be. Mm-hmm. You know, you have spent an inordinate amount of time worrying about something that's going to be a very small part of the story in the end. You know, so I've watched certain directors who, as they've done several episodes. Um, you can watch them mature and, and begin to understand. Well, you know that, and I don't care. That's that's not that important. I'm, I'm just, go ahead and let's just do this. That'll be great. And but here's what I really care about. You know, um, this is the the part that matters to me. Right. You know, this is gonna. This is what's gonna really make this story work or not work. You know. Um. Now you hear stories. I haven't worked on a lot of these shows, but you'll hear stories about shows where someone that has a great deal of power, whether it's a you know, a showrunner or something else, and they they just can't make a decision, or they feel that they can continue to make to change their minds up to the last minute, and um, and which creates a lot of chaos. That I'm sounds like a nightmare to me. Shows don't come out of that. That sounds but, nightmarish. Yeah, lots of them. Do, do, have any of the uh, the stars of Criminal Minds wound up directing episodes? A lot of them. And and Matthew Matthew Gubler mm-hmm. um, is, was actually came out of. That was his. That was his focus. Um, he wanted to be a director. That's how he he got pulled into acting. Um, and so he's directed, I think, eleven or twelve episodes. Right. Um, but also Joe Mantegna, who's you know was a is a, a very I can't say enough nice things about him. A he's gifted a, writer as well. Yes. I mean, Joe Mantegna's written lots of great director, stuff. Theater director, yeah. theater actor. Sure. Um, you know, different directors come from things at different points, like Joe. Joe is focused on story and acting. You know, he's interested. He's focused on the actors and the story, and uh, he trusts. You know, it's, he trusts the rest, everyone else to do their job. So you present him with the choices. He he weighs in on the choices. And he has opinions, but he's basically saying, you know, you do your job, and I'll do my job. Uh-huh. Other people will be extremely focused on the design. You know, other uh, directors. Well, I really didn't think they'd be. You know, I wasn't thinking blue. I really felt like this. 
this would be green, you know, and our, or, you know, uh, um, I imagined it this way, and, and you know, and, and, you know, they have very specific ideas. So it's different people have different focus, you know. Obviously, sure. we talked about Wes Anderson. I mean, a profound designer, you know. Yes. Um, oh, every, it, it, very detailed. Yeah, a profound attention to detail with a profound vision, you know. And I'm not saying that his production designers are terrific, but they're clearly a guiding light there from film to film. Just right. the way Hitchcock, you know, would, you, mean, oh. I don't, you know, obviously, you know, people put together teams and the teams establish those looks, but certain directors just have. Well, Hitch, Hitchcock, so, uh, Hitchcock was beyond unique in the sense that he not only was a designer to start, he was a designer before he was a director. And, yeah. and, um, he also was at an era and time when he basically invented huge amounts of what we do today. Um, yeah. And and so I I think of him as the greatest. I sh- let me put it this way: I think he's the most influential director we've ever had because of all of the things that he figured out that nobody else had ever done before. A lot of camera yeah. tricks. Um, I, I was wondering about the actors only from this perspective. Do, the, I, my assumption would be is because they're on the show for so long and know their character so well and know the show so well that you probably have less breaking in period when they're doing it for the first time. Yes. I mean, absolutely. I mean, they know the world. Um, so they're familiar with the world. They're not just being dropped. But of course, being familiar with the world and directing an episode are, are different. Are different. Sure. You know? Sure they are. Yeah. I mean, uh, but they have a great step up. And of course, you know, they have a, you know, you have a very, uh, supportive team behind you. All right, so it's a great way it's a great way to to direct your first project if you're part of a a family who's going to support you. Oh, you yeah, I would think that that's really really helpful for a first-time director to be already very familiar with everyone and they know you and you know them. Um Yeah, and no one's, you know, everyone everyone is invested in your success. Sure. Which is huge, you know. Sure. I think that's because, yeah, that's uh, great. You know, so, Episodic television directing, or any, even at the highest level, like it is with streaming shows now, you're still the guest. You know, you're you're brought in, and you and uh, and you're not part of the ongoing team. Mm-hmm. And you know, you can get a lot of support, and you can get a lot of accolades, or you can be blamed. <laughs> you know, for if the result isn't is is a disappointment for any reason. So you know? so wh- what is it that you most love about I'm going to ask you the the flip side of this in a second. What is it you most love about designing on a TV series? What is the best thing about it? Well, I think that the, for one thing for at least in the show I'm on just that there's a couple of things I loved. I love the scouting. The, I don't know any other job that gives you entree so many different worlds. Mm. Not only do you get to see dams and power plants and go down into the sewer and you get to go into, you know, you know, government facilities and you, you know, you get to FBI building or the, you have entree to all of that. You also have entree to people's homes that you would maybe have no interaction with socially. People from different stratas, the extremely rich or people from different ethnic backgrounds that, you know, would I be visiting, you know, in an Iranian plastic surgeon's home in the West Hills? Mm-hmm. Necessarily, maybe, but <laughs> not, you know. But uh, you go into someone's house; it's a whole world. And then, even more so, the poorest people, the the people, the wor- you know, struggling working class people, that 
I would have no business going in their house, and they might be very suspicious of me if I were, you know. But they're absolutely, oh, criminal minds, oh, please, you know, they want you to shoot at their house. Please come on in, and you want to see the bedroom, the kitchen? Sure, you know, it's a mess, but come on in. And, you know, you just get, you know, the entree into the whole world. Like, I've, I've been, it's been very privileged to see every corner of L.A. County mm. in shooting this show. For wow. So that's one thing I really like. The other thing that I really like is that is the challenge is just like you're presented with these sets of problems and they have to be solved. You know, there's no debate about, you know, well, maybe this, maybe, I mean, there is some of that, but something has to be done. Decisions have to be made. You have to design, build, paint, you know, dress sets and they have to be ready. And, uh, and then there's this very satisfying thing that, that, that it's like a, a launch pad, you know, you, you, you make your decisions and it's off to the races. Sure. You know, you're building it, yeah. you know? So um, as opposed to uh, speed is satisfying, you know? You, li- you like you the action. you got to get used to having all your stuff thrown away in the trash. <laughs> that takes some getting used to. You'll have, be beautiful set. Have you, you know? saved anything? It's hard to save stuff. You have this fantasy, you know? You know, you save maybe, maybe little bits and pieces. You save a really cool door or a window, or it's a handmade thing. But, you know, unless you own gigantic warehouses, and what are you going to do with it all? Right. Unless you have a theater company or sure. a film company. You it, know? Is there anything, the flip side, as I, was gonna, as I said I was going to ask, is is there anything about production that you just wish you didn't have to do? Sometimes you'll have long meetings. That can be, you know, a little tiresome. But not usually. You know, every once in a while, I, I can't think of anything at this moment, but, you know, every once in a while there's... Uh, and it's a somewhat intractable problem where you just you're running into stuff, you know. Um, usually, the frustrating stuff for us at this point is, uh, you know, you're not allowed to do as much stuff outside of the studio space as you used to do. Mm-hmm. You know, things have become much more precious. Um, it's harder to shoot on streets. It's harder to shoot in in uh, parks. I mean, in terms of what they'll let you do, even on the film, even in the film. Uh, there's just a lot more restrictions, you know. I mean, you know, people are just a lot more careful. There's a lot more of the Wild West back. Well, know? I think, unfortunately, there have been any number of productions over time for the last hundred years that have done damage uh, from a public yeah. relations perspective. Fatal. From a phys- yeah. Fatal damage. And so they people just know, don't, don't let a motion picture crew in here. They're going to destroy your property. And so yeah. they don't. They just say, forget it. And um, that has hurt the and industry. Also, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the uh, there's just a lot less you can do. But uh, we still do it. I mean, we find a way to do it. That's all. So you have find you, another way. You you've you've talked a lot about the speed of it and and how much you have to do under pressure. It's clearly a pressure packed business. Um, what do you do to handle pressure? You know, you want to get sleep. I would say, <laughs> uh, you know. Don't want to be sleep deprived. Uh, you know the basic physical stuff. You know if you're really getting stressed. You know the things that everybody does. Go to get some exercise. You know try and distract yourself if you're really getting hammered. You know uh, it is. Uh, you know the the film business is 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 a kind of a in an adrenaline driven gig. Definitely. So you kind of have to be that kind of person. Otherwise you wouldn't do it right you know uh, you know 
I'm not scared of the stuff I do, but what scares me is what the stuff I don't do. Like I have production design friends who just do those live award shows. Oh, that's gotta and be I tough. I'm like, you know, okay, I can I can imagine doing a, a stage show, or even a big Broadway show, if I had the right team, because you get to rehearse and practice and practice, and you have dress rehearsals and previews. And no. You're doing some gigantic thing with all these moving parts, big moving parts with stars underneath them, you know, well-known actors climbing around, you know, and, <laughs> and it all has to work for that one event that's live on television, you know, live broadcasting, streaming. I mean, I, I know they all do it. They have teams and they, they know how to do it, but I would be terrified. I, I would also imagine at this point, 325 episodes over 15 years, um, there's probably not a whole lot that throws you. Um, you no. And, I'm, and I'll start a new job, and I'll, it'll be different, and there'll be a lot more challenges and more pressure, and I'll have to feel more pressure that every single thing is being watched, and I have to perform, and, you know, I'll have to get back into that. So. Well, that's, uh, you know, I, I, do you know where you're going next? No. No. No, I don't. Um, Are you going to take a break? Yeah, this is, the, you know, I like to take a break. Um, I've got a lot of other stuff going in my life, actually. I've got other projects. One, I won't go into all of it, but I've got a big property that I've been fixing up mm -hmm. that came into my life three years ago. Huge project that I've been working on, and I'd like to do that, and I've got other things. I'm going to be getting married next year. Oh, congratulations. Um, thank you, and but, um, you know, the thing about these freelance jobs are you don't want to, uh, you know, I feel a little bit like Rip Van Winkle. You know, I've been on one show for 15 years. So sure. I feel like it's important to get out there, you know. Um, so well, we'll see. I, 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 There's I can't, a lot of opportunity. I can't imagine um, that you won't be snapped up somewhere because you have so much experience. Um, and uh, that's, I think so. I yeah, hope so. I'm, I, I'm, I'm um, be willing to bet on it. You know, the... Uh, that the show, you know, the entire business has shifted so much in the 15 years I've been on this show. It's an entirely different, you know, business. Uh, production has expanded all over the United States yeah. and the world. Yeah. It, you know, um, you know, I'm as likely to get a job in Cincinnati or oh, you're in Pittsburgh, right? Yes, I'm in Pittsburgh. I could be in Pittsburgh. I could be in Cincinnati. I could be in Louisiana. I could be in in, uh, you know, New Mexico, there, Atlanta, there's, for sure. There's lots of production that happens here in Pittsburgh. We do, they, yeah. uh, David Fincher wrapped two years of Mindhunter here, just not too right. long ago. I know, the, uh, I know the team that worked on that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there's, there's lots of opportunity out there. And, and, uh, but at the end of the day, uh, I think you'll agree, uh, um, people still will have cameras on sets and that will require designers. Yes. Although, you know, also we know that, um, I mean, if you, if, you know, that, uh, you know, set extensions and process shots have gotten so much a part of the world. True. Always, you know, I think actors will always want to be in their costumes, in their characters, in their sets. I agree. They don't want to sit in a green void. I agree. And perform, you uh, know. Yeah, I would uh, think that that's so very challenging that, for them. There's always going to be sets. But uh, a lot of it, of course, now is, you know, how, how do your sets, where's the transition between your physical set and the, and the process shot? Right. You know? Of course. Of, and yeah. who's designing it? 
and who's designing it. It's still going to require somebody to say, hey, want to put this building here even in this fake image that doesn't exist, right. as opposed to, no, I don't want that building there. I want a statue there. So exactly. somebody has to make those decisions. That is for sure. Well, Vincent, we've been talking for an hour, if you can believe that. Um, and so last couple of questions for you. Um, you know, you've met and dealt with tons of people in, in the business. And I'm just wondering if uh, you can relate to us um, an oddball or quirky or offbeat or weird or just plain funny uh, experience that you've had. Okay. Well, I will. I would for quirky and and just mind-boggling stress. There was nothing like designing the Red Knight costume for Terry Gilliam. <laughs> Can't wait to hear this. <laughs> and uh, for the Fisher King film, um, for which we were hired very late in the process. The design was supposed to be a costume design, uh, basically a, a knight on horseback, and then it got you know Terry Gilliamized <laughs> as the as, as as the, as, the, as the show progressed, and six weeks out from shooting, they decided they needed a special effects costume, <laughs> which at that point involved a guy on horseback wearing a helmet with a flamethrower, <laughs> which we had to design. So the, the guy was, this was a physical, you know, stunt person riding on a Percheron stallion with carrying the gas, compressed gas, compressed oxygen, and also CO2, because Terry Gilliam wanted the horse to snort like a locomotive. And this was, you know, they weren't going to do CG because he had been burned on Munchausen. And he didn't get a lot of things that were promised, so he wanted in-camera effects. So we designed and built, uh, the helmet was, the top of the helmet was cast aluminum with a flamethrower in it. And the guy, the guy drove around, that he was riding a horse in Central Park with a 12-inch pilot light uh, coming off his head uh, and then when he hit a button six feet of flame came out and we were trying to figure out how we were going to do this without incinerating the horse's head <laughs> so we ended up designing a helmet for the horse's head that was made out of kevlar oh wow with these baffles and the design of the horse's helmet was designed to baffle away the flame oh. in case the stunt rider accidentally put his head down and hit the button by accident oh. it was so insane and we, by the way, the ASPCA was involved. So, but anyway, we had just a quick story of many stories out of that. We were under the under the gun, so we had to go fly to New York, and we made all the. We were also making all the props because we had these halberds and swords, and the swords looked like a sawfish, but the blades had teeth on them like a sawfish. We had to make them out of rubber, and we also had to make them out of aluminum because he had to be able to hack at things. And it wouldn't break. We also had to make breakaway versions, or at least non-lethal versions. And we had halberds and all this stuff. And Keith and I hadn't slept for 60 hours. Oh. I mean, not, we hadn't taken our clothes off. Let me put it that way. We hadn't taken clothes off for 60 hours. We'd fallen asleep on the couches and stuff. And then we had to load all of the costumes for the horse and for the guy and go to New York. And, and we, we'd gotten all these used um, roadie cases from a, from a supplier for rock and roll, you know, supplier. And so everything went into those, and we ran shotgun, and we flew, we slept on the plane, and we arrived. And uh, right away from the airport, it was like, okay, you know, there's a, there, we're having a costume fitting, and we're going to do a prop. We, want, we need to do a prop walkthrough. We want to do a prop show-and-tell for, for the director and the producers. 
I said, okay. So we're waiting. We go to this warehouse in New York, and we go there, and all the actors are, are Jeff Bridges, and everybody's there getting their costumes done. So we're dead, and we got all these props, and we're waiting because obviously they have to take care of the actors first, you know. And um, so we're waiting and waiting and waiting. Eventually, Keith and I just fell asleep on the floor of this warehouse. <laughs> and people were stepping over us, apparently. We're clutching these things. And what I remember is, I remember I was lying on my back, and I look up, and I, I wake up, and there's Terry Gilliam's face. And he's there, and he's kind of shaking my shoulder. <laughs> and he's looking down at me with his big smile and says, you boys look pretty shitty. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, it looks like the rot has settled in. That's good. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> <laughs> well, so then he woke us up, and we like staggered. We got up, and we showed him all the stuff. And he said, oh, that's great. That's great. And anyway, I could tell you a lot of stories about that show. Uh, you do another hour on I, that show. I it imagine. Was, it was well, insane. Well, it would, I'll say one thing. It will never happen again. You uh, will never have a man on a real horse with compressed gas and all that stuff and lack of podium pots, leaking red smoke, and the guy trying to, you know, ride this horse down, you know, Amsterdam and Fifth Avenue, you know, in the middle of the night. No. It was crazy. Now it'll all be CG. There will never that... It was completely CG. And the guy, and rearing the horse on a rock with all this crap and then blowing the flamethrower off the top of it. Oh. You know? Well, you you got to work to, with one of uh, the Monty Python crew in that way, and uh, and yeah. that's a very very memorable experience. That's a hilarious story, and maybe one of these days we'll have you back on, and we'll just do an hour on the Fisher King. You know what? You would not be bored. Uh, I believe it, you. It, it was a remarkable, it was a remarkable journey that movie. I believe you. I you know it sounds like it would just be for two green for two greenhorns. Yeah, you know, who got sure. pulled in out of the just out of the, you know. Out of, the, out of the out of the out of the ether, basically. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, do you? Well, this has been fun. Do you have a solid piece of or, or uh, of advice or a tip for those who are just starting out or trying to get in or maybe trying to go to the next level? Here's the thing. Um, in this, particularly in, in as to be an art director, in particular, you know, the passion for film, obviously, you, you know. Um, so you assume a certain a passion for film and a bit of the, an interest in the history of it, and that you want to be part of that, you know, run off and join the circus kind of thing. Right. Uh, but there's no, absolutely getting your hands into it is how it is. It, it, there's no. I mean, you can go to a good film school, and it's a great way to get uh, a start. You know, a film design program is great. Um, architecture is another way that people come in. I came in sideways through sculpture and you know, interest in film and background. Um, there are different venues, but at some point it's really doing it. It's just doing it. Get your hands into it. Mm -hmm. Do do theater, do short films, do webisodes, you know. Uh, that is that is how it, it happens. It's the people you meet as you're making stuff who move up as a group and spread out and then, you know, you get that call from someone you did with a little tiny project, you know, six months or two years ago, and they're doing something, and they remember you. And that's how you, you know, that's how you get the practical end of the experience. And there's simply no, there's simply no uh, 
substitute? There's no way to replace that. It, it, it has to be hands-on. You're talking about so two... I'd say dive in would be my advice. You're talking about two truly valuable pieces of, uh, pieces of advice there in one. One is you need to just do it because there is no substitute for just the, the act of doing it. And then the second, and maybe just if, as important, if not more important, is the establishment of relationships with people who will be doing other things that may bring you along. Exactly. I think that's uh, spectacularly valuable advice. Vincent, this has been a terrific uh, show, and I really appreciate you coming on. You've you've given us such insight into how your world works that I think most people would find mysterious. So I appreciate you taking the time. Well, that's that's been great. What a pleasure. Thank you. And so we've come to the end of today's Story Beat. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to give us a comment, rating, or review on whatever app or platform you're listening to. Your support helps us bring more great episodes to you. This podcast would not have been possible without the generous support of the Center for Media Innovation on the campus of Point Park University. Until next time, I'm Steve Cuden, and may all your stories be unforgettable.